Welcome to episode 13 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast, uh, no longer just in all of Central North Carolina, because I am now located in the uh, quiet little burg of Tübingen, Germany, uh, but we still have a sp- special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Rappel, and with me is SCG Mainstay, GPDC finalist, and creator of Sam Pardee-approved Gorio's Deathvine <laughs> deck, uh, Collins Oh, Bowman. man. Yeah. Cool, cool. All right. I'm glad that my uh, my title keeps on getting longer, but uh, I would say creator of the deck, uh, maybe popularizer of the deck. Um, okay. Be a little more right, accurate, that's fair. But, uh, but yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. Cool to see Sam do a little video on that. Yeah, did you get a chance to watch it? I watched a little bit of it. I didn't actually watch a bunch of the matches, but some, some friends of mine said, hey, Sam played your deck, and he gave you a shout-out, and I was like, sweet. I, I watched it on, on the plane, actually. Most of his comments were, I'm sure that I'm making a mistake or two this turn, almost every turn, it, and then at the end he was like, yeah, this deck seems really powerful, so... Oh yeah, okay. Uh, That's pretty much the conclusion that I came to. You know, even playing it at the tournament, I made just a bajillion mistakes all the time. Just because, just like, you know, I don't think that there's ever been a deck, at least that I've played, that has existed where you have to, like, pick between three different strategies, like, relatively early in the hand sculpting phase. So... Um, right, because you're actively discarding cards, so you're choosing right. to pursue one strategy or another. Like, am I putting these hollow ones in play, or am I doing something yeah. else? I mean, I guess you're always putting the hollow ones in play. So just yeah, other than that. just very difficult in that regard. So I'm um, not surprised to hear that he struggled with that a little bit. Um, yeah, I definitely but had a lot of trouble. It looked well. pretty good. He made it look closer to your day one performance than your day two performance. So excellent, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we'll talk more about Modern in a little bit. Uh, I think for right now, like, the most exciting thing is that we have week one standard results with Ixalan and that exists. So yeah, we so spend some time talking definitely. about that. Uh, Dallas was last weekend. We got to see a lot of information just come through there. Kind of the standout deck from the weekend was the Sultai Energy deck that we saw the Jessups play. They're on Team MGG, and that whole team did pretty consistently very well. I know Jim Davis is the team captain there, and he kind of rocked the whole tournament Swiss with his blue-white approach deck, another deck that we should talk a lot more about as well, because that one definitely had a pretty big showing on the weekend. Kind of like as we predicted a little bit uh, last week on the podcast, we were talking about Settle the Wreckage being like a really solid option that that deck had access to now, and it sounds like it made a pretty big impact. Yeah, I mean, these blue-white approach decks, you know, last season sort of started out towards the tail end of the season as kind of a joke, like, haha, look at this control deck that uses the approach of the second suns as a silly win condition, and then just started gaining more ground, and then with a couple of these cards uh, and general powering down of the format, it, it is the number one control deck so far, at least. It's, it's definitely the one with the biggest numbers and the one that has kind of the most uh overwhelming game one game plan so yeah uh of all of the control decks that i've seen or played against so far in standard it's been that blue white control deck i definitely think that that's kind of like solidified its spot there in that in that sector of the metagame so then the other decks that we saw were the sultai energy deck that wasn't like super popular but it had like the highest conversion rates and and the most success Uh, it had finals and a top four finish in the Jessup Brothers. In, yeah, two um, different Jessups. Yep. So, right. Whenever whenever you see, like, teammates with the same 75 doing really, really well, that's pretty much an indicator that that was pretty much where you wanted to be for that weekend in terms of deck selection. I, and it doesn't hurt that they're both, you know, very good, very experienced players. Oh, absolutely. But... Yeah, for sure. And I think that that kind of, like, has to happen for, for players to come to a conclusion that's just so good for the metagame is that they're going to be the more experienced players in the room. Like, we've seen it before in, like, like there was a recent example where, like, Brad Nelson won a GP playing against, uh, like, his teammate uh, in the finals, BBD, and his brother in the quarterfinals, <laughs> uh, Corey Bowmeister. So definitely cool to see that. We saw some four-color energy pretty much rock the weekend. The The general feel that I got for the weekend was that, just by, just by looking at the numbers and everything, because I, I wasn't there, it was that, like, the, the format... Felt very, very mid-rangey. There was definitely uh, a lot of red decks kind of floating around, just because it was week one, I think. 
But for the most part, I think that where people really settled on and where people were really trying to be was this like really grindy mid-rangey plan. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why the Sultai Energy decks did so well there, is that the deck is it plays out a little aggressively in some draws, but fundamentally I think is just a very like grindy mid-rangey deck. Right, it's got to have that snake draw in order to get that really aggressive start. Right, I, which I think is, like, when you say Sultai, you definitely often think of, like, a grindier deck, but it is important to note that this deck often has, like, very, very aggressive draws where, like, you can get a Long Test Cub early and Wide Constrictor and just kind of, you know, if they don't yeah. have an answer to that, they're just going to lose to it. And that combo is one of the most powerful early game things you can be doing in this format. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. But I, on the other end of the spectrum, I think that the the deck also had legs just to go really, really late and kind of like take over the late game with the hostage takers and drawing extra cards off of Glint Sleeve Siphoner, mm -hmm. um, grinding people out with Walking Ballista and Widening Constrictor, um, just a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah, it does have a lot of tools. And I think the hostage takers uh, were, they, they looked pretty powerful over the weekend. They looked very powerful all over the weekend. And in addition to that, I think that they're essentially just taking hostage of Standard in general. Um, of, of all the things I've seen coming out of Standard after Dallas, it's just been more of a progression of that, a bunch of mid-range decks slamming into each other, and the one thing that I keep on seeing in all of these lists is Hostage Taker. Uh, definitely going to be the card that you're going to have to keep an eye on moving forward. And it's really good in this deck in particular because Hostage Taker and Blossoming Defense are just best friends. Those it's two, two yeah. great tastes yeah. that are better together. That is true, and it definitely looks like on paper that's like they those cards work really well together. And I'm sure that at like in week one that was a very potent combination of cards. However, I think that moving forward, uh, something that at least my team has noticed in testing is that it's often sometimes pretty awkward for these decks to uh, play with blossoming defense. Mm -hmm. because a lot of these mid-range decks are just really trying to tap out every turn. So okay. if you're like actively trying to like you know make a powerful play every turn, and then you've got some blossoming defenses that you just like haven't been able to squeak in, it's it's felt a little awkward. I don't know if that just means that we're maybe playing a little too aggressively and tapping out, but it just it's just felt like that we've like needed to do that every time. Like if if our opponent plays a scarab god we have to hush the Taker immediately before they have the ability to untap and utilize it. And the mana is such that it's harder to, you know, sometimes you just, like, have to compromise and have a land come into play tapped because we're playing a lot of the fast lands, which are really, really good in the f opening turns, but after turn three, it can be pretty awkward. Yeah, it's it's easier to leave up a, a snake with a blossoming defense than it is to leave up a hostage taker with a blossoming defense. Yes, it's a huge difference. So we, we've kind of noticed that that's a, like a little bit of a disenergy. So moving forward, I don't know exactly how well Blossoming Defense is going to be able to fit in, but we think that maybe we want to gear a little more towards like more good mid-range cards instead of like trying to go all in on the Hostage Taker plan. Okay. We're, we're still tinkering around with it. I think as is, we, we know how the metagame feels. It feels very mid-rangey. There's like a control deck that kind of goes over the top. Even even like all the mid-rangey decks have good plans against that control deck. Like there's Duress and Negate still in the format. I, I haven't felt like the four-color teamer decks or the Sultai decks are particularly too much of a dog to the control decks. I think the control decks are probably favored there, but it's not like a huge blowout. Like we see the mid-range first control normally shake out. Well, I think that those game ones are pretty rough on the mid-range decks. Uh, yes, especially that's, true, since, that's true. Since we're talking about approach, which they just have no way of interacting with until they bring in those duresses or negates. Um, right. But then after that, you know, they have really cheap ways to mess with the control decks, really expensive spells, and I think that puts them at a reasonable advantage in the sideboarded games. Yeah, definitely. It makes a lot of sense. For the most part, the red deck, while being the most popular deck, has felt kind of the least amount of popularity, um, or not least amount of popularity, but just like kind of like the least powerful in this new metagame of um, mid-rangey stuff. Uh, yeah. I think that it's it would probably be a good choice if the mid-range decks get a little too inbred. But as long as there are Bristling Hydras and Whirler Virtuosos and at least some of these lists, I think that the red decks are going to continue to 
not be in the best position. And I don't think the Sultai decks are that much of a better matchup either because of, number one, they have access to Fatal Push over two mana removal spells, which is a pretty big difference. And also the, the main deck Hostage Takers to take out Hazaret. But they also sometimes beat you down faster than the red deck can deal lethal if they get a snake draw. And, you know, even if that's only 20% of the time, that's a significant difference in matchup percentage. No, I mean, absolutely. The, like, the, the biggest deal for being a mid-range deck playing against an aggressive deck is that you need to be able to turn the corner as quickly as possible. You need to be able to stabilize and turn the corner. And the better you can do that, the better your matchup's going to be. That The Sultai deck is just very, very good at turning the corner. With yeah, definitely. If you've, if you've ever been on the receiving end of Snake into a Walking Ballista and all you have are one-mana creatures and, and a shock, then... You know, it's not great. Yeah. If you're looking at a bunch of, like, lightning strikes in your hand and your opponent goes uh, snake into Rishkar, yeah. hit you for four, and you didn't have your lightning strike up, then you're in a very, very bad spot. You're, you're just going to die yeah. too quickly. Even if, that, even if you can spot, spend so. a bunch of cards to get rid of their board, then you're just going to die to whatever four mana play that they make. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I think that's kind of, like, my perspective on where red is in the format right now. It's still very much kind of up in the air, like nothing's settled, no deck has immediately popped out as the best deck, I don't think. Some of my teammates were testing with the Sultai energy deck and said they didn't like it very much as well, so maybe that was just an early iteration of a Sultai energy deck, but I think that there are also like other ways that you can go with it. Um, I've seen a couple other lists that are popping up that are a little more tuned for Sultai energy. Um, like a much less green and more like blue black controly lists that were still had kind of like that energy sub theme going on, so I think that there's going to be it's it's going to be interesting to see like you know what evolves through this. I think that there 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 hasn't really been like a few decks that have like popped out as like I think that probably the most tuned list so far is the blue white control deck, just because that one kind of like built itself and it was like one of the most early iterations of like a deck that came out of the new standard. A lot of the other decks are still continuing to evolve and adapt to what we're seeing, which is honestly pretty sweet and interesting to see out of New Standard. It's kind of like what you want, right? Yeah, yeah. Definitely seeing how these decks adapt to each other is, is really interesting. Um, I mean, we should talk about that the blue-white control deck in general, even though it hasn't changed a ton. I think the main question going forward is how much other blue-white control are you expecting in the format, and that determines how many uh hard counters you run in your deck and that's kind of the main mm -hmm. like do these slots do i still need to be running these ether meltdowns and and kind of uh chintzy removal spells or can i afford to start running some three mana hard counter spells so i can actually do something in the mirror match right definitely definitely a lot of options there i'm, I'm kind of looking through the blue eye control decks that i've been following recently um and comparing them to the ones that we saw in dallas it seems like people are actually moving a little bit away from approach and more going towards like gear hulks and gideons i don't know if that'll stick i think approach is definitely still a solid plan against a lot of the uh the matchups and i kind of misspoken on our last show when i like lumped all the control decks into gear hulk decks because the sort of classic approach shell that we've seen for a little while it doesn't have any gear hulks main deck it might have a couple in the board you know, if they're going more towards actually having gear hooks in the main deck, I mean, I do, I, I think I kind of like that to make it a little more versatile, but, you know, the more expensive cards you have in your deck, that can certainly hurt the control deck plan. Definitely, yeah. Um, and the other thing that I've seen happen is that a lot of these decks are running a creature package in the sideboard of what you were talking about, the Gear Hulks and also Regal Caracals. I think that's probably an interesting approach of kind of like a, a sideboard strategy of the deck where your opponent kind of like believes that you're on approach the second sun, so you're probably not going to be having a lot of creatures in your deck. So they take out all the removal, and then you can kind of juke that a little bit by playing all these like pretty stabilizing creatures. And that strategy is a little bit. It's certainly not defeated, but a little bit weakened. Uh, if you're main decking those Gear Hulks, then you're turning on like Teamer Energy's Harness Lightnings game one. Uh, yeah, and their braids as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and especially a braids. So that that really. I'm not sure that I'm super into the main deck Torrential Gear Hulks in 
in the approach decks the more that I think about it. Right. Uh, it, yeah. Like, you certainly side into creatures because it's they, they are going to side out some of their removal because they have to and they're going to leave some in, but it's not going to be that many dead cards and it's, it's important to have cards that have an impact that don't get hit by duress or negate. I don't know. And, and then especially, like, this 5-0 list that, that you were talking about, having one approach of the second sun, I think just really... I mean, number one, if it gets negated, then you don't really have a plan anymore. And it also, you lose your ability to, like, approach and then untap an approach, which may not be the most important thing in the world, but, you know, it, it's a powerful surprise gotcha. And it also, obviously, you draw more approaches if you have three in your deck, so. Yeah, I think that the the idea there is that you just have so much dig in the... Ots, the uh, Supreme Wills, and the Glimmers that you should be able to get there pretty quickly. But I agree, like, if your opponent's playing the Gates, then the, that plan seems not the best. Yeah, I mean, maybe the one just comes out almost every match, especially if they have blue in their deck. Um, yeah, that's fair. But, so, I mean, it, it sort of changes what the deck is a little bit. Like, it mm -hmm. changes that into, like, a pure long game control win condition, where if you're running three or even four of them, it's more, it's almost a combo deck uh, in some ways because that win condition can just come down and end the game when your opponent is really not ready for it. Here, if you got to dig through 40 cards, it's a very different kind of game that you're playing. I, uh, I'd be interested, I, I never really play a lot of these control decks, but this one just seems so powerful that I might be willing to give it a shot again. There are a few kind of like interesting cards that I want to be able to speak on, but just like, don't think I can just because I don't know how they would play out. One the the one of the more interesting ones being farm to market. Mm -hmm. That's grown a lot in popularity over the past like week or so. We saw I think Jim Davis was the first person to play that card in these decks. He had two farm to markets in Dallas. Just a uh, rule spell on the front end and a faithless looting on the back end, which is kind of like a unique little package. And it honestly it seems very strong. Like just the the card filtering that you get out of a faithless looting style effect is pretty strong. As uh, like especially since you're not really paying a card for it, so right. Um, and especially because the deck with the loss of those cheap white removal spells is playing some you know kind of narrower removal spells like like ether meltdown that at some point in the game you may not want anymore. Like, this main deck has a one-time Spell Pierce, one-times Essence Scatter, one-times Negate, and, and those are definitely cards that at some point in the game, uh, depending on the matchup, you may just not want anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, this list only has the one farm to market, but you'll draw it. The, the point of this deck is to draw all of your cards at some point, so... <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, it's got a lot of tools that, you know, make it pretty good at that, right? It's got a lot of, like, interesting carded engines uh at least uh jim's deck did when the search for ascanta seemed pretty powerful it seems like a lot of decks are moving away from that a little bit although i still am seeing a lot of two searches in in the more recent decks so i think yeah that, that card's probably here to stay in, in that in that version i think it is i i don't i think most of the decks we've seen have been running two of those and it just seems to be fine good enough that that it like, you want to see one in your opening hand if you can. You never want to draw two, so you can't run too many of them. But, you know, it flips relatively early and gives you an extra mana to work with, which is incredibly powerful. Uh, I, I think this card worked out pretty much the way we we kind of foresaw it working out, not to toot our own horns too much. No, I mean, I think that you're completely right. And you, that was one of the first cards in spoilers that you mentioned. So, you know, good for you. <laughs> it seems like it's, <laughs> it's pretty, much, pretty much exactly what you anticipated. I mean, I'm going to count it as a win. Yeah, definitely a win there. Yeah, blue-white control. I think it's Yeah, I, think I mean, it's, it's a real thing. Yeah, definitely. The mana is very good, and that's a big thing for these decks. You know, like these Grixis decks that have to reach in a couple different directions for removal, their mana is noticeably worse than, than blue-white's mana, especially with a control deck where stumbling against an aggressive start is really going to cost you. I'd be much more comfortable with this, like, four irrigated farmland, four glacial fortress mana base. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like, if you can play a two-color deck, particularly an allied two colors, I think that's, like, very, very strong right now. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the three-color decks, I think, are, are definitely going to have some problems. Uh, as long as they're not running 
Uh, like if you're running a tune with ether, you and aether hubs, I think that you get a huge break. But anything yeah. that's not doing that, I think is definitely going to be very tough. Yeah, I I completely agree. Some of these aggro decks that have kind of risen up, I mean maybe because Raminet Red is is having a little bit of trouble because people are a little more ready for it. So I mean. I've seen a couple of different lists that have kind of gone in completely opposite directions from each other. So this very recent 5-0 by Paulo Cabral underscore Brazil. Black-red aggro, basically the red creature base, but splashing black for Scrap Heap Scrounger, Unlicensed Disintegration, Cut to Ribbons, and it's got Key to the City in it, which turns on Unlicensed Disintegration and forces through infinite damage. Yes, um, yeah. So, I, I mean, this is a list after my own heart. It's got Inventor's Apprentice, <laughs> and, like, this is a thing that I tried to make work uh, in Last Standard and really didn't quite get there. Just a very lovely deck to me that I will absolutely be trying out. Yeah, I mean, so this deck has a lot of the things that I would be looking for in an adaptation of an aggro deck to be able to fight the kind of the mid-range mess that we're looking at for Standard right now. Um, it's got yeah. a bunch of reach, which just, like is able to punch through kind of like the normal mess that we see, like, you know, mid-range decks clogging up the ground and being able to turn the corner. Like, this this deck has the ability to compete with that still. Like, it's got Cut the Ribbons and Unlicensed Disintegration and Key to the City and just, like, a bunch of cards that you really, really want to be able to close out the game uh, after your opponent is able to clog up the board and start really pressuring you a little bit. So, yeah, I, I definitely like this one. I, yeah, I, I really like it. Um, the one thing that I'm I'm seeing that is making me think that he has had some some of the similar problems to what I've had when trying to put this deck together is he's running two unlicensed disintegration uh, mm. and not four unlicensed disintegration, which is just kind of an artifact of like you're doing the work, uh, and yeah, artifact is is a careful word choice there. Yes. Um, you're doing the work <laughs> to enable the unlicensed disintegration, which makes it an incredible card. But at some point, putting in the fuel for it and then putting in as many unlicensed disintegrations as you can and also having the early game creatures to make this actually an aggro deck, like you just run out of space and you've got to make cuts somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of surprising to me that two cut to ribbons makes the list over unlicensed disintegration three and four, but maybe it's just very important to, you know, kill Winding Constrictor on curve or something like that. Like, that is the problem that I've had when putting these decks together, is that putting together the fuel for disintegration and putting the disintegrations in, like, 60 cards just feels very tight. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, and I think that he's, like, this guy's done a really good job of being able to build a shell that doesn't, like, lean too hard on unlicensed disintegration. Like, mm -hmm. um, the rest of the deck seems very, very solid, and, like, it can definitely win games when you don't draw them. So I think that like two is a good number because it definitely is such a powerful card sometimes when you draw it in the right spot and your opponent just like can't beat that card. But uh, I definitely think that the the deck is well set up to you know be able to kind of hold its own without it for sure. Yeah. And one of the things that I really like about this build is how resilient it is to removal, even more so than Remyap Red. I mean, the main point of weakness to removal in Ramunap Red is Karizev, which is an excellent card, but is kind of the only, like, oh yeah, I'll definitely abrade to that, like, target in the deck. Um, yeah. And here, you know, you it's either one-drops or guys who come back to the graveyard or PNLR or Hazard the Fervent. So that's less enticing to hit with a Harness Lightning or an Abrade. There are keys to the city to hit with an Abrade, but you still get some value out of that, probably. So I, I like how well set up this is against a lot of the removal spells that people are casting right now. Yeah, and I, I think that because we have Lightning Strike now, I, I definitely really like the style of list, just because that's just like another card. Like, uh, the way that this deck plays out most of the time, from what I imagine, is that it is able to get in some early damage with the like the early creatures, like the Inventor Sprintus and the Bobat Couriers, but it, it really needs to be able to push through just kind of like reach damage after that stops being like consistent damage. Um, and yeah. the lightning strikes are kind of like a piece that I think that uh, maybe the deck didn't have access to before. Like, you know, sure we had incendiary flow, but uh, lightning strike was just such a good upgrade on that that it seems like yeah. this deck should be able to have some success there. Yeah, and then the other 
deck that I saw kind of goes completely the opposite way here, and it's a black deck splashing red cards. Uh, it's It's got all these black one drops that deal two damage. Dread Wanderer, Night Market, Lookout, Vicious Conquistador. Uh, runs Glint Sleep Siphoner as a little uh, energy thing with Ether Hub and Ether Sphere Harvesters. And the only red spells in it are Reach spells in Hazard of the Fervent and Lightning Strike. And then a couple of sideboard cards. Uh, but this is, you know, pretty much a mono black aggro deck with some red cards that don't need to be cast until after turn four or so. You know, main deck's Fatal Push, uh, which is a, a pretty powerful card in the format right now. I, I, I like it as a removal spell in an aggro deck. I thought this deck was pretty cool, but I, I'd probably lean more towards the other deck that we just talked about. That's, you know, if I'm going to boot up Moto and try a deck right now, I'd probably am more interested in trying the, the redder one than this Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There was another list that I kind of saw, kind of like just during the early Swiss rounds of Dallas, that was more of a mono black aggro deck. Uh, it got to play Walk the Plank as like a removal spell, just because I'm sure the mana base was just all swamps and maybe some of yeah. the black sack deserts. That deck was able to play, it played like a very value oriented key to the city, scrap heap scrounger game uh, with some like early aggression in the vicious conquistadors as like another two power one drop. Um, but then it played Glitzy Siphoners and the new Dark Confidant style card um, yeah. as just like a bunch of uh, card advantage um, and key to the cities. So like it's just able to like churn very quickly through the deck, which I thought was like a pretty interesting approach to playing an aggressive deck. I mean, so like the real payoff for drawing a few extra cards in an aggro deck is often that it gets you that extra reach card to finish the game. Yeah, right. And I think that that was definitely what that deck was lacking. Right. Yeah. If that deck could be drawing lightning strikes too, then that would be something that I, I'd, I'd be really interested in. But when you're just drawing and hoping to make this key to the city keep working on your guys before they kill you, then that's a little less... It's just, it's just not as efficient as hitting them with a lightning strike and then an unlicensed disintegration. Yeah, I definitely have to agree there for sure. Yeah, I just, you know, I just thought it was interesting as like kind of still in the mode of like discovering new things and seeing what people are coming up with um yeah yeah and and we have not really seen until the past few days these black one drops really doing something but i mean there is a legitimate package of 12 black one drops that attack for two damage including dread wanderer which is just a good card so right uh, yeah i mean you definitely don't need to be zombies to play that card so no especially in a deck that's trying to help in itself yeah yeah definitely uh and i mean scrap heap scrounger remains a, a very legitimate threat, although, you know, it gets its wreckage settled just as badly as any other creature, so that's... <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. If, if you're playing around settle, that is the one creature you leave back when you attack with your other creatures that turn. Yes. Uh, yeah, settle the wreckage, and then um, another card that we should probably mention uh, that's been seeing a lot of play in some sideboards was Vraska's Contempt. That was definitely yep. a card that saw a lot of action in Dallas, I think as an answer to both the Scarab God and Hazaret. Uh, yeah. Just being able to an cleanly answer both of those cards is like very, very powerful. Yeah, there are very few cards that do that. And, and yeah, yeah, I'm definitely in for Vraska's Contempt in the sideboard. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if the format gets inbred enough to justify putting that in the main deck, but I think that for now it's probably just like a very solid sideboard option um, for yeah. the time being, so... Yeah, and, um, and we've seen it a little more in the black decks with Gearhulk. They're able to main deck it a little more easily because even if you lose a little tempo using it the first time, you get that tempo back when you flash it back with a Gearhulk, uh, and then the life gain helps balance it out. And when, you know, you've taken control over the board and you've gained four life at that point, and, and that's very powerful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, you know, any other decks you want to talk about for standard at the moment? Um... um Oh, we should probably at least mention uh, Brendan DeCandio's Gift of the God Pharaoh list. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't know if everybody was following the the actual tournament, but he definitely had quite the run where he, I think he may have hit X3 pretty early in the tournament and then just had a pretty insane run to squeak into 8th on tiebreakers. Yeah. Uh, so that was always fun yeah. to see. Definitely. And I like Brendan a lot, and it's, it's, it's always good to see him do well. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, and it's a fun deck to watch for sure. Yeah, I, his deck was honestly, I think, very innovative. Like he he was one of the first people that knew that Hostage Shaker was kind of the nuts. He was just kind of bent on making that card work, and I think that he found a shell that definitely was able to utilize that card as as well as it could. So yeah. Um, like yep. we all, you know, we all knew about Godfather's Gift being a deck, but I think that his version of that deck was very innovative, um, and it was really cool to see him do well with that. Right, especially Seeker Square going a little bit deep. You know, once there's no red in the deck, your options are a little bit lower for especially turn two plays, and and he's not even running all four chart, of course, because it looks like Seeker Square is kind of the two drop that he wants right now. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that has a lot to do with blocking creatures out of the various aggro decks. It just does so much. Um, the explore mechanic on a two-drop body that's just, you know, pretty large, honestly. You know, all things considered, like, if you're hitting a creature on top of your library, putting that creature into your graveyard for uh, Godfarer's Gift and Gate to the Afterlife, and just putting a 2-3 body on the board that you can later chump block and then put that creature in the graveyard, it just it just works so well with, like, the game plan of the deck. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the other additions is from the new set is Vona Butcher of Magan, uh, which is that five mana four four lifelink vigilance. You can tap and pay seven life to exile yeah, yeah, a permanent. Yeah. Um, and I think that's more because the deck is asking for a critical mass of lifelink creatures to bring back and give haste uh, than than anything else. And so some lists have played Sacred Cat, and I think this is just. A much better card than sacred cat even though it doesn't come down super early but it it i mean that vigilance lifelink combo that both it and uh, uh angel of invention have is key to stabilizing the board against i mean mono red number one but a lot of other like smaller creature decks. and you know not to throw away the activated ability of this card there's a lot of times where like if you have an angel of invention or a vona or, or like just any lifelink threat that you are beating down with and your life total gets very large. You know, sometimes your opponent, like you're, like you can be playing the Gifts Mirror and, or you need to get rid of some other pesky permanent. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, hang I, seven I'm, life. I'm sure that that happens a lot. Right, yeah. It would be interesting to ask Brennan how many times he activated that ability over the course of the tournament, but uh, it seems, right. seems very solid, honestly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I am assuming that that card gets discarded to Champion of Wits or Charter Chorus more often than it gets hardcast while, while building up to the God Pharaoh's Gift. Yeah, but definitely. I, but you can hardcast it. It, it. Yeah, it's not a huge ask to pay five mana for sure. Yeah, right. Not really where you want to be, but definitely your, your game plan involves getting up to five mana pretty, pretty consistently, so. And, uh, one thing to always keep in mind is that hostage taker can take artifacts hostage which i think will be a key part of playing this mirror in the future and something to certainly be aware of if you're playing a non-god pharaoh's gift hostage taker deck against a, a god pharaoh's gift deck is yeah that i feel like that might be something that's pretty detrimental for this deck to be able to exist in the future if everybody's running hostage takers then like everybody's like having a four of get rid of your god pharaoh's gift at least temporarily seems pretty strong yeah, even if we're leaving in a Braid metagame, if that means that we are now entering a Hostage Taker metagame. And honestly, the more Hostage Takers are around, the more I want a Braids to kill those Hostage Takers quickly and efficiently. So yeah. uh, I can see the metagame easily going to a place where you do not want to be running uh, Godfrey's Gift. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, and if you look at Brennan's 75, there just like aren't that many ways of getting rid of a uh, Hostage Taker once it hits the board. Like, a, like he's got the Fatal Pushes... But, you know, not terribly easy way to revolt those, and just no removal spells that just easily hit a hostage taker. So, probably yeah. pretty rough on that axis. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that will be a major weakness of, of, of this list going forward. And then it's just also hard to fit removal spells that do hit hostage taker into this deck because you have to be running so many creatures to make it work. Right. Definitely, definitely like this list a lot. I'm just kind of uh, skeptical as to where it's going to fall. In the metagame moving forward. So. Yeah. So where do you think we want to be uh, in the metagame moving forward? If you're playing a tournament in the next couple of days, where what, what do you think you want to be running? 
So from from what I've seen so far, there are a couple cards that I really know that I want. The and those cards are Hostage Taker, Scarab God, and Rogue Refiner are all cards that are just like super oriented towards like the mid range mirrors and seem very very strong on their own. I don't exactly know what the rest of the shell wants to look like. We definitely saw those cards in the Black Bean Constrictor energy shell from kind of like that Sultai energy list. We've also seen those cards out of just like Teamer energy shell. Uh, we've also seen we've also seen those cards in just kind of like more black blue oriented shells that are a little more controlling mm -hmm. and are definitely trying to play a lot of cards to go over the top of the mid-range decks. So I don't know exactly which shell I want those cards to be in, but I do know that if I am going to lock in on any particular cards, then those are the ones that I'm going to want to play. Sure. So how do you think that we can get an advantage in that mid-range? You know, if you end up playing like a Sultai kind of shell and you just end up playing the mirror, like what... If they've also got Hostage Takers and Scarab Gods and Rogue Refiners, then what what can we do to take advantage of that? The, uh, I think that the general approach that a lot of people take on like approaching mid-range mirrors is probably going to be pretty solid. Um, I haven't I haven't really played enough to know to be able to see any like obvious loopholes of like if if we wanted some anecdotes, we can kind of go back to when Black Green. Like, a, a long time ago, like, when, right when Kaladesh came out, like, Black Green with Winding Constrictor had, to like, just come out, and people kind of, like, viewed that as a mid-range deck. Uh, people were like, alright, how do we win this mirror? We gotta put in Gontis, we gotta put in Omnixilis, we gotta put in all these cards that are, like, good in the mid-range mirror. But a lot of other people kind of, like, took a look at how those matchups were playing out and realized that the most important thing was actually just to curve out and kill your opponent. So sure. they really wanted to gear their decks to be able to do that as efficiently as possible, and then they had a lot of success. In these hostage taker mirrors, I'm I haven't played enough with them to be able to kind of like see any interesting play pattern loopholes that are particularly exploitable. But from what I can think, at least on the surface level right now, is that you definitely want to be playing a lot of cards that can interact with the cards that I just mentioned profitably. You need to be able to kill. A Scarab God before it takes over the game, you need to be able to have efficient answers to Hostage Taker before they have the opportunity to cast that spell that they've taken. And you need to just be able to bring your own haymakers. You need to make sure that you're doing something inherently very powerful that's not just like easily broken up by your opponent's cards. I think that those are things to look for. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a clean answer right now as I'm still kind of like testing out and getting a feel for it. But I'm going to be doing a lot of testing this coming week, so hopefully I'll have some better answers after that. Definitely. Uh, I'm wondering if there, you know, you can lean sort of the other way too and try to find the best way to break up what your opponent is doing, even if they've tried to be resilient. Uh, like Harsh Scrutiny is actually a card that I think could be really powerful in this mirror because, you know, it gets around a lot of the power of Hostage Taker and uh, Scarab God they don't really have defenses against getting discarded mm -hmm. uh, and also knowing what exactly your opponent is up to because these games usually end up resolving around like one giant thing that happens to be the best thing on this board and so knowing that that you can take that thing uh, may I, I mean these are all creatures like it is a creature heavy format scarab god is, is really the most powerful thing you can be doing um, right. So I I would probably start trying out Harsh Scrutiny, and it might be terrible because removal spells can just be terrible, but maybe is an angle that, you know, people don't expect to face in that yeah. matchup. You know, and there are definitely some other haymakers that I think that people need to not forget about, kind of those being Confiscation Coup and right. the Sky Sovereign, the, the big boat, um, I think are definitely cards that are going to be very, very good in these mid-range mirrors, so... Yeah, um, just don't get your boat hostage taken. Right, yeah. If you're playing boat, hopefully you're playing a boat on a turn that it just kills their, your opponent's hostage taker, or at least you're prepared with another removal spell to be able to kill the hostage taker that takes your boat. Something I do want to kind of like take a step back and notice, though, is that all these conversations are revolving around hostage taker that we're having That's about true. like how we run our personal metagame. Um, so it's important to kind of identify those key cards and see if there's anything that is kind of 
take advantage of that card existing and being very very popular um yeah and just a like design note um kind of interesting to me that they specifically designed glory bringer to not hit dragon creatures and my understanding of that was so that um it wouldn't turn into this game of like holding on to your glory bringers you could murder theirs with yours but with hostage taker they didn't do that and so we do get these games of can i play my hostage taker here is he just gonna take my hostage taker hostage do i have a response to that if he does yeah which is kind of interesting gameplay, but a totally different philosophy from what they did with Glorybringer. Definitely, yeah. And then kind of the other interesting thing is that Hostage Taker's ability is not a May. You right. do exile something. One thing that I have seen actually happen on Moto was somebody Hostage Takered... Somebody played a Hostage Taker on an empty board. That Hostage Taker then got Hostage Takered by their opponent. And then... The hostage taker with a hostage taker underneath it was then hostage takered by the original player, and it actually right. created an infinite loop. Um, because <laughs> as soon as the hostage taker was removed under the first one, it ate the other hostage taker on the board, and then right, the ex- old you know etc etc reset the game. So right, that was like yeah. a that was like a I, I saw that I saw a clip of that happening on on Magic Online, and I was like, this is probably just gonna happen a couple times, like even in real life paper magic. Yeah, if if this is a four of in a bunch of decks, if everybody's jamming a bunch of four of hostage takers, then that's just gonna happen sometimes. So yep. when there's an unbreakable infinite loop on the board, the game's a draw. Shuffle up. So it is an unbreakable infinite loop. You know that yeah, that might draw. that might just be something to watch out for. Um, or use if you're losing or whatever. I guess hard to be losing if that the board is so hostage takery. Like <laughs> right, if yeah. the board is only like well hostage taker with a hostage taker under it. But yeah, you know if you're out of cards and they got a full grip, you know maybe give give this game another shot. Who knows? Yeah, really something to to know that that exists and that's just gonna draw the game and definitely not something that we see every day in in standard. <laughs> One one this piece of deal. actual yeah. gameplay. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, this is not the format for that. Um, one piece of actual gameplay oriented advice that I saw a little bit on the weekend is don't get too greedy with hostage taker. I think if you can hostage taker a different creature, then if they have an empty hostage taker, it, depending on board state, you may not want to take that hostage taker with yours. Because if they do have the removal spell or something, then they get a, a very powerful... They get to hostage take again. If you just took a different creature, then they just get that creature back, and then their board is back to normal, not board back to what it was, plus they get a hostage taker trigger and potentially a free creature out of it. Um, so yeah. it, I think I saw that a couple of times on the weekend, is, is taking empty hostage takers when it was just not really necessary because they need to untap with it in order to get the benefit. Yeah, definitely. And like another interesting thing that you know might be worth noting is that like if your opponent has a bunch of cards in hand and you figure that they have a removal spell, um, and you have enough mana to hostage taker, maybe like you really want to hostage taker their four drop, but you only got six mana and you have the opportunity of hostage takering for like excellent tempo their two drop. I think it's often just like worth to have the ability to cast that card immediately yeah yeah that's pretty huge so but I, and i definitely think that goes along with your point of uh not getting too greedy with your hostage taker like sure you can hostage taker like the biggest thing but you know if the board's cluttered enough and you feel like you need to make this play to use your mana but you can't afford to like hit their four drop and then hope to untap with your hostage taker then definitely worth uh using that on the smaller creature that you can just cast immediately if you only have six yeah. or seven mana available yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, that was a lot of standard, but there, there's a lot going on in standard, so I think it was worth talking about at length. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, kind of a small topic, but coming up over the next two weekends, uh, this weekend we've got Worlds, next weekend we got Nationals. I, I figure we should at least say a couple of words about them. You're going to be playing in Nationals, right? Yes. So, Nationals is the same weekend as the Charlotte Open. And mm-hmm. the Charlotte Open is definitely normally the closest open to where I'm located in North Carolina, but I am going to pass that up in favor of going to Nationals, which is also very close to where I am in Richmond. They're actually both about two hours away. 
Yeah, Richmond, not the most centrally located city in the United States uh, to hold nationals in. Yeah, I was kind of interested in that, actually, because there are a lot of excellent players that live on the West Coast. And they, they just, you know, they're going to have to come all the way to the East Coast to play nationals if they want to. I know that, you know, the better players will make that decision to do so, but kind of annoying, I think, on that on that I, extent. Yeah. I think we have a much lower chance of having a, a California national champion than we probably should. Right, right. So, you know, a little bit unfortunate geographically there, but uh, good for me, I guess. Like, it's, it's pretty nice yeah. door to where I'm at. But yeah, I, I'm going to Nationals. I'm like super excited about the playing in a split format event. It's not very often. Yeah, good play practice. A, uh, good practice for the Pro Tour. Yeah, yeah it's going to be standard and booster draft. So um, I've been testing a lot of both of those, and I'm planning on continuing to do so over the next couple of weeks. Really, really want to figure out standard. I'm kind of like at the point right now where I... I'm seeing what's going on in standard, but I haven't really figured out like what angle I want to approach it at. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna continue working on that. But yeah, very very excited about nationals. Um, cool. I uh, I'm qual- I've qualified through just like you know having enough playing soccer points, and I'm also fairly confident that I've got a, a buy in nationals because I have a bunch of playing soccer points. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm sure you do, but yeah, that information is a little bit difficult to, to figure out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not their website hasn't been the easiest to navigate for for that stuff. I had like four, maybe five thousand planeswalker points last season, which I'm fairly sure is the season that they're looking at for this stuff. So I I'm pretty sure that that's enough to get a buy. Yeah, they should be looking at last season because this season's only a couple of months old. So how can you get four right. or five thousand or whatever the requirement is? Right, right, right. Um, I'm I'm pretty bummed to be missing it, just that I can't yeah, hear. You you left off to Germany, uh, you know, maybe know. a week or two earlier than uh, than nationals. So yeah, it's it's, it's a little too bad. But... It's really cool to have a tournament to determine who is the national champion. Like that's a that's a thing. Like you can say to a a person who doesn't know anything about magic, like. I am the national champion or my friend is the national champion. And that like has its own cachet that like pro tour champion doesn't really hold. So that's, that's just kind of a cool thing to exist. Ali Antrazi is kind of like a local ish to North Carolina. And he was, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure the reigning national champion from the last time that they did nationals. And you know, that was a, a title that stuck with him for a long time. So yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully it doesn't stick with this year's winner for more than a year. Yeah, I, I would love to have continue to have these annually. That that'll definitely be. It's 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 definitely a very very cool tournament to have access to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, also Marsh Ussery, uh, North Carolina. Uh, I don't know if he was native, but he definitely played a lot of magic with us in North Carolina. Also national champion. Uh, nice. Back when that was a thing. So that was. That was it. Was just cool to get to hang out with a guy who went to that tournament and won it, and like just had the title of national champion for a year. Yeah. So I'm really glad that this exists. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it my best shot. I I feel a little rusty and limited, but you know, standards generally my best format. So. Um, yeah, and I mean, Magic Online's there, and you gotta practice anyways. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Like, so, like, now you have a uh, reason to do a bunch of drafts and, and, you know, lose a bunch of value on those, so you might as well. Instead I'm, just do I'm already it locked in anyway. on that, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Plus, okay, so Worlds this weekend, too, uh, and that's, I, I'm always hyped to watch Worlds happen. I had a little bit of self-inflicted drama when I was looking at just the world's info and I was not seeing BBD on there had to re go through all of the, Oh yeah. The world champion doesn't qualify for the next world's thing. And that made me very sad. again. Yeah. That was, um, that was kind of some drama that happened a couple months ago, even where BBD himself thought initially that he was going to be requalified and was told so by some Watsi people. And then that was later, retracted because of the new thing that they set up yeah uh he's he just said okay i'm just gonna do my best to requalify for the next worlds but it, i don't think that he managed to do that so yeah I mean, definitely unfortunate. Worlds is really hard so. yes ridiculously hard so yeah uh definitely unfortunate to to not have the reigning world champion 
be there. It just seems like a mistake, I think, on somebody's part to just like have that not exist. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely also disappointed that that's going to be the case, just like as a spectator. And I mean, seeing BBD like scrape his way into Worlds and then battle his way into winning the World Championship, it, you know, especially against Marcio Carvalho right? in the finals with like who is cheering for Marcio Carvalho over BBD like that was just great it was BBD. wonderful so. BBD yeah of course <laughs> everybody loves him yeah um, so so yeah unfortunate hopefully they change that in the future uh, it just seems like a pretty big oversight from their part only only so much we can do yeah and unfortunately Worlds is far too small for him to get like a makeup special invite or in the future or anything if there's only 24 slots that's you know not, yeah, not the slots happen. are so tight that, yeah, it just kind of seems impossible to be able to fit in there. But for the guys that are in the tournament this year, who do we like? Who, who do we want to win? Who do we think is going to win? Any particular favorites or predictions? Um, I, I just think the, the Japanese pros are always pretty easy picks if you're doing some sort of fantasy draft. Because there's always, if, it feels like in every single world there's always like two players from that region that are doing really well. Uh, be that, like, Shota or Yuya or uh Yeah, I mean, Yuya is players. scary. I, like, hard to bet against Yuya. So, I, right, I would definitely, like, if, I'm, if, if you're asking me right now to put my money down somewhere, I think that I would probably start there. But it also always kind of feels like they don't close. So right. it, it seems like a, an American is at least in the recent past, has been pretty dominant in terms of winning Worlds. You know, definitely a few players that are there this time that I would keep an eye out. Uh, I think Brad Nelson is on a pretty high, hot streak right now. Right, especially since half of this tournament is standard. I mean, that's that's a good Yeah, that's a him. pretty big portion of Worlds, I think, which is unusual. Yeah, definitely, definitely kind of balls in his court a little bit. I think that he's definitely considered to be the standard player in the yeah. world right now so yeah he's definitely the person i least want to play against in a standard tournament i mean going from a purely win lose standpoint i guess <laughs> right what i think is super interesting in this world is that all of peach garden oath is qualified which is completely insane so <laughs> yeah yeah R- reed huey and owen three guys on their same um you know they play every team gp together and they are one eighth of the world's field which means that, and, and I'm sure, you know, if one of them were qualified, the other two would be very diligent in helping them test and, and be great teammates. But with all three of them qualified, like, if there's a deck out there that is the deck that you should be playing at Worlds, like, I have to assume that they would find it and they'd find the best version of yeah. it. Just because they, they all have so much riding on it. I don't know, I just have a, a feeling in my bone. You know, like, PV is playing the best that he has ever played and he... For PV to be playing the best he's ever played means that he's playing impossibly well. <laughs> right. Yes. So I, I wouldn't really want to bet against him either. But having these three guys all in worlds together and the way that like clearly they're incredibly in sync if they're able to like win the majority of team GPs they enter. So having them teaming up and all in the same tournament, uh, I it's kind of cheating because it's it's three out of twenty four slots. But like I probably would put my money on one of those three guys winning this tournament. Yeah, I mean, definitely hard to root against those guys. They just, you know, over and over and over again proved themselves to be super strong. But, you know, it is Worlds. The yep. the roster's ridiculously strong. Uh, kind right, of the worst player at Worlds is an incredible Magic player, so... Right, right. So, uh, yeah, definitely some... some Like, maybe my Dark Horse pick is actually going to be Donald Smith. Um, I think really? that he's been playing very very well recently but just like haven't hasn't seen a lot of publicity lately um mm-hmm. i think that he he's somebody to look out for but again you know just kind of like all these names are super well known so yeah um, yeah definitely i guess as far as guys that i want to win like i'd love to see calcana do well just one of the friendly faces good guys of magic and it's nice to see him get in there as i've mentioned before yeah definitely definitely excited for this tournament i think it's going to be a, a good one to, to keep up with yeah yeah always one of the most fun tournaments to watch kind of reminds me a little the the size of worlds being so small kind of reminds me and makes me nostalgic for the old days of the invitational which was definitely before your time um but i don't know if you know much about the magic invitational no actually 
I don't. So it, it was like a, and, and the size changed, but I think it was usually about a 16-man tournament. Pros, so some got in on pro points, some got in on winning pro tours, some got like voted in uh, by the community. And I don't remember exactly how all these selections were made, but it some some people got voted in who were not at the same level of magic skill as some of the other people uh, in the tournament, which created some funny situations. But it was really great. Uh, they would play like several different formats, uh, at least one or two of them they actually played vintage in. And some of them they did this like auction of the people where people would submit decks under a certain rule set. And then the the pro players would bid on the the decks they'd bid like hand size and life on on the decks so you might get a great deck but you'd start out with four cards and like 14 life or something like that um and then you play against somebody with a bad deck but they start out with eight cards and 22 life that's cool so it was like a bunch of really interesting goofy formats and that's where the the invitational cards so dark confidant and snapcaster mage and that sort of thing that's the tournament that those came from uh, and that was the main prize. I don't. I don't even know if there were money prizes, but it was definitely like a bragging rights, like be immortalized in a magic card. Yeah, fun. Tournament. Yeah, I mean that's definitely something that. Right, you say fun tournament, and I think that kind of like epitomizes it a little bit. Where that tournament seems awesome and ridiculously fun, but like given the scale that magic has reached now, it feels almost impossible to be able to organize that to happen again. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, it just, like, if they're able to do worlds like this, I, I don't know, just, maybe it's just nostalgia, maybe it's just me looking back and wishing that this thing still existed, but. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I would definitely love it if, if it did exist again, I think that would be very, very awesome, but I think a lot of players care so much about just, like, the, um, the integrity of the game in the context of, uh, like, all the matches being super fair. Um, right. And I think that, it, like, you know, if, we, if we're throwing in, like, weird variables about, like, bidding on life and stuff, that would be something that would be hard for the players to be able to really figure out too well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it rewards that sort of, like, adaptability more than, like, you know, current magic really rewards preparedness and, and thoroughly understanding the format, and that sort of rewards of more of a thinking-on-your-feet kind of instinctual approach, which is you know, interesting, right, not yeah. quite where we're at right now with the game. Yeah. Yeah, the game right now is definitely more rewarding towards, like, practice and deck selection and things that you can, like, prepare to do before the tournament starts. So... Yeah. And I would say it would be cool to see somebody else bring it back in the future, but I think having that immortalizing the winner on an invitational card is just too important a part of the invitational for, for it to be anything else. So Right, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, I can definitely understand that. But yeah, excited excited for Worlds this weekend. I'm definitely going to be tuning in. Uh, I think that that's, Worlds is going to have a... It's it, This is an interesting spot that we are in for Standard because Standard is often so skewed by uh, like big tournaments affecting its metagame, such as like the Pro Tour mm -hmm. and Opens and stuff like that. And it's going to be weird because we're going to have Worlds in this Standard format before the Pro Tour. Yeah, yeah. Usually standard is pretty stale by the time Worlds comes around. But right. this is And I think that that new format portion of the tournament is probably one of the main reasons that I that I'm leading one of the Peach Garden Oath guys to take the whole thing down. Just really having okay. those guys working together yeah. on whatever they're gonna do for this tournament makes me think that Yeah. And know, I think that's part of why I have Brad Nelson as as such a high person on my list for this tournament is that yeah. Um, you know, if anybody can figure out standard, it's him. Although it is important to note that he more often excels in a more defined standard format, and the fresh ones, you know, he doesn't always get it right on the fresh uh, standard formats. So. Yeah, it's hard to. It, he's very good at exploiting holes in a metagame, but when the metagame doesn't exist yet, that's, you know, it requires a different skill set. Yeah, definitely. So we still have some time. I don't know if we want to talk about modern at all, or if we just want to move on to important things like the Popeye deck and Legacy. I mean, you're calling. Yeah, it. I think that we can. Uh, time wise, I think that we've we've filled enough that we can probably go onto the Popeye deck. I do want okay. to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think it's very important. Yeah. So the Popeye deck, sort of entered the public consciousness. There were, like, 
rumors about a pirate deck in Legacy, some sort of stompy deck. Uh, Saffron Olive actually put a, a bounty out on uh, if anybody could bring him the list, then he'd send them. And I don't remember what the prize was, but it the fact that he posted on Reddit uh, a bounty asking for someone to bring him the list made everybody aware that, oh, there is some sort of pirate stompy list out there. Uh, and then things just kind of exploded from there. The list was supposedly based on a cycle of of blue creatures from Mercadian Masks. They were all pirates. Rashadin cut purse and Rashadin like foot pad come in and they make your opponent sacrifice a creature unless they pay some or sacrifice a permanent unless they pay some mana. Uh, and the deck was supposedly an ancient tomb city of traders deck with those guys and uh, Siren's Ruse, the blink spell from Ixalan. And then the whole internet lost their minds about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was definitely pretty hilarious to see that kind of happen. It's it's so rare these days where a deck comes out in an eternal format like Legacy and people just get super excited about it. Uh, so I was definitely very excited to see that happening here. Um, <laughs> and kind of, kind of like a, a callback a little bit to... Like the good old days of Legacy, where it didn't just like immediately get broken every every time you know new cards came out. Um, yeah. So this was kind of like you know there were definitely some cards that came out that enabled this to happen, and it's it was fun to see it kind of just like take over a little bit. So I'm still confused. I'll admit about it. I, I know that Bob Wong posted that article on Channel Fireball pretty much saying like what's more reasonable that this deck with pirates actually exists or and then he posted a chat log that was pretty much their plans to troll the internet with a fake deck based on pirates yeah um but people have been running this deck and winning some matches with it and and maybe that's just because ancient tomb is a broken card city of traders is a broken card chalice is a broken card force of will is a broken card and once you have those cards in your deck it almost doesn't matter what your other things are you're going to win some games based on the strength of those things but weird suspicion that there's something here. Like, I, I don't think it's a good deck, necessarily, but I, 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 I don't know. I think it may not have 100% been a troll from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I believe that people were legitimately trying out these cards as, like, a stompy shell. It's, so, it's just so easy to, like, you know, be able to fit a tribe into a stompy shell that people are like, you know, we got some new pirates, we got some new stuff going on with these pirates. Um, let's try it out. And, you know, and some of these pirates are reasonably good. Um, <laughs> but some of them just, like, are unreasonably bad, which is the same. Right. Uh, the like, five mana one seems horrendous. Well, I, I can't... <laughs> yeah. There's also Ramirez... Oh, man, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this well. Ramirez de Pierto, which is the, the legendary creature. He just doesn't belong in this deck at all. So I don't know how many of these options here are a troll choice, but I don't know. It's it's funny, yeah. at least. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of the cards in that deck list that he posted are, are definitely troll choices to emphasize that this is not a real deck. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. My feeling is that at least it started out with them trying to make something like this work mm -hmm. and it's not that far off of being a real deck i don't think anybody broke legacy and it's probably not like a new deck oh no yeah we're, we're definitely not game. talking about like legacy's broken now but um no but it is funny to see just how excited people get over a new legacy deck because there right. hasn't really been one in a while yeah definitely i definitely had a lot of fun with this and i mean if you spend a bunch of money on a mercadian masks pirate rare i, I feel like you kind of deserve what you got. I don't know. I can't feel too sorry for people. If anybody bought like a hundred of these Rashadin foot pads or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a lot of sympathy. People who like bought it because they really wanted to play the deck and spent too much money on them. Like, yeah, okay. That's that's not the greatest thing in the world. But it Seems reasonable. Yeah, definitely a little bit unfortunate of the side of magic where people are going to kind of like be in it for, for making a quick buck and like buy out some of these cards now that there's hype around them you know that's just gonna exist i think always in magic um yeah especially with these older sets with these low supplies it's just so easy to jack the price right up. right for sure but yeah definitely definitely kind of like uh fun humorous magic news of the week <laughs> tidbit yeah there. yeah definitely uh and then i one like 
cute little tail end to the whole thing is I saw uh, one streamer who was playing a version of the Pirate Stompy deck. I think he might have even been playing exactly the list from Bob Wong's article, like troll cards and all. Yeah. Uh, but he got matched up against Julian Nab and beat him with Pirate Stompy. Uh, Julian yeah. Nab was one of the guys behind the creation of, quote-unquote creation of pi- Pirate Stompy. So it was kind of a beautiful look what you've done sort of moment. <laughs> yeah. There are always consequences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is fun. All right. Uh, I think we'll definitely talk about modern very soon, uh, but not a ton of new stuff this week. So we'll we'll push that off a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, now, eventually I am excited to talk about my next crazy modern deck. Um, which Ooh, I know that people will be excited about. I'll just leave that there for now. Maybe we'll, you can't give we'll us up some, even a little some hype there. A little preview. <clears throat> um, uh, I don't know if there are any cards in here that I can say without giving it away completely. So, okay. um, right. yeah, I got, I got. You know, it's it's not an unknown deck, and I think that a lot of players have been playing it t- to some success. But it's definitely not like something that you would expect out of to see in a in a modern tournament currently. But we'll see. Uh, I've been testing yeah. it a lot. It's 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 insanely difficult to play. I think it's way harder to p- play than Gorio's Vengeance. Oh my goodness! Deathbind. Okay. Um, well, so and just so so listeners know, Collins isn't going to tell me this deck until I talk to him again next week. So I'm going to be <laughs> just as surprised. As everybody else is. Excellent, so. excellent. Yeah, I uh, I might play it in a like a PPTQ this Saturday. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll definitely have reports from that. Perfect, uh, perfect. Yeah, hopefully I don't embarrass myself too much. But um, well, I, I, I think I feel PPTQ. like I've proven that I'm willing to do that. So <laughs> yeah, I mean nobody will notice. I've I've O three to PPTQ before. <laughs> right. It, yeah. It can happen. So yeah, I'm, uh, it'll it'll definitely be the first time I'm playing this deck not on Magic Online, which will be a, its own experience. But um, yeah. yeah, we'll see. Um, Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So so um, triggers triggers stay, to remember maybe stay tuned. Something difficult. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. I am in Germany now, so who knows if we might pick up some German fans. Uh, But it's all on the internet, so check us out. You can catch the podcast at our Twitter, at MTG underscore Grindcast. And you can check out Collins' Twitter as well. At Collins Mullen. Pretty pretty simple stuff. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. All right.